It wasn't until I got to maybe property 40 or 45 that I decided, you know, I think I want to transition to like some apartment buildings, maybe some mid-size apartment buildings. So I always thought for a while, eventually that's where I would graduate to was apartment buildings. On 2017, uh, I had my first child. I have two girls, a five and a three-year-old. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, prior to that, I was working at home. Uh, the home office thing was perfect. You know, I work in the morning, go golf in the afternoon, come back and work at night. <laughs> So things were great, but uh, I had one child and I realized this is not a realistic future for me is to work at home. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Adam Craig. And today we're learning lessons from a successful real estate investor who started with the Burr strategy, and then now has more recently moved into investing in commercial real estate, specifically in office, office buildings. Really impressive. And he shares lessons from us for the Burr investors out there. Just in case you don't know what the Burr strategy stands for, it's buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Basically, you buy a piece of property undervalued, fix it up, put a tenant in it, and then refinance it, hopefully taking out all of your original capital and then move on to the next one. Adam did very well with that strategy and decided to switch gears a bit into office investing. And today, he's gonna to teach us a few lessons from both of those worlds. We're gonna learn about how to hire contractors and manage them. You're gonna learn about what rehab ideas pay off the best in your investments, which ones make the most sense and which ones are really kind of a waste of time and money. We dig into a few there. And we also talk about the important differences between single family residential investing and the commercial real estate investing that he's doing these days, specifically in office buildings. We talk about some specific deals that he's done, really interesting stuff, very inspiring what he's accomplished. So a lot of great stuff in here today. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. That helps other people see that, hey, they can learn something from the show too. And you know what, you guys? That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I also get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, don't forget to look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically apartment buildings and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and connect with me to take the next steps, go to investwithtaylor.com. Once again, investwithtaylor.com. Today, our guest is Adam Craig. We have a pretty... Uh, really information-packed conversation for you today about burrs and single-family investing and then changing tracks into office, complex office building investing. So great stuff. Without any further ado, here we go. Adam, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you so far, and you have a fantastic resume and a lot of great lessons for our listeners out there about real estate investing. For those out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you tell us a bit about your background and what you do these days? Yeah, sure thing. I was born and bred in Cleveland, Ohio. I live in some suburbs on the east side of Cleveland. I do all my investing out this way as well. Went to Kent State for uh, business finance. Thought I was gonna be graduating, being you know a financial advisor, maybe a financial analyst, but uh, shortly after, uh, graduation. I had an online business that that did pretty well. 
I won't go too much into it. It's not all that sexy. It's kind of boring. Uh, but essentially, it, it was an online uh, retail business. I buy defective camera equipment. I had a person uh, or a company that would fix it at bulk rates, and then I would resell it. So it's boring. It doesn't get me up in the morning, but it did pay the bills for a while. Um, so shortly after that income surpassed any entry-level salary I can get, uh, I decided to go full blow with that. I uh, got a business loan, uh, expanded that. Uh, did really well for quite a few years, did over a million dollars in revenue for three years straight. Uh, it has since come down. I would say the peak was in 2015, 2016. Um, there's various factors that have made it come down, but at least it was uh, so far about a 10-year ride and it's helped me pour all the savings into my real estate investing business, which which does get me up in the morning. That's awesome. That is a fantastic experience that you had. And, and I think that you described the business as you know not exciting or not sexy. And I think that's actually an advantage because the, the flashy things tend to get competitors a lot more quickly and they, they tend to be, you know, you attract more competition to just to, to say that twice. But uh, so on the real estate investing front, you've you've done quite a bit and there's so much that we could talk about. But, uh, you know, tell us about your experience with, you know, rehabs and, and doing the, the Burr strategy and how you scaled that up. Sure. Yeah. So I bought my first property back in 2013. At the time, I really thought I was getting into real estate as a passive investment. I, I always knew I wanted to be into real estate because, Real estate creates wealth. It lasts forever. You never know what's going to happen with the internet retail business or any W-2 job that you have. So real estate was always on my radar. Um, I think it was on my radar in a smaller fashion. When I started, I had planned on doing you know, the carpet and paint type thing, uh, having a property manager take care of all my properties because I didn't think I had time to manage them. So uh, with that, I saw some pretty uh, low returns, I would say. I, I might cash flow on a rental property, maybe $200, $300 a month. Um, after a carpet and paint style rehab, maybe I have acquired five, $7,000 in equity. So at the end of the day, I thought I was doing pretty good, but uh, compared to what I evolved to, it, it was not at all worth my time. So uh, maybe around year two or three, I came across the BRR strategy, BRRRR strategy through bigger pockets, uh, which back then it, it, you know, it barely had a label. I mean, it was, it was, it was not what it is today. So it sounded intriguing to me. I did it on some smaller scales before I got to the point where I took on some serious major rehabs. And then I think it was a deal maybe in year three or four that kind of just triggered me to do nothing but uh, Burr strategies going forward. And that uh, kind of evolved into uh, 2018, where I, I started dabbling in commercial real estate. And now, as of today, I'm doing a little bit of commercial. I still uh, hold a pretty good, significant single family portfolio, but uh, I'm going to be transitioning out of the residential, not so much the residential, out of the single family space into mostly commercial, but um, that's no knock on uh, single family. It served me well. It got me where I am today and it's a great investment. Awesome. Well, you know, Burr standing just for folks out there that don't know, stands for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Maybe I got a few a few of those out of order, but buy a property well in the market, fix it up, rent it out. And then since it's worth more, you refinance it and pull out your original equity, pay off your lenders if you had any, and then move on to the next deal. And I think one of the big things that keeps people from, from going that route or, or scares people about going that route is working with contractors and just they they don't know how to find them they don't know how to manage them to make sure things get done on time and and on budget so how did you you know handle that and, and what are some lessons that you learned along the way so in the eight or nine years i've been investing i probably circled through close to 100 different contractors <laughs> luckily now 
luckily now I have a, a crew that has been with me for a, more than one crew that's been with me for a significant amount of time. So a lot of those headaches are, are over, but uh, in the process, I definitely learned a ton about hiring contractors. So on the first big rehab I did, it was, it was an extensive rehab, needed everything. I had contacted a big name company in the area. They came and gave me a bid. I was blown away. The numbers were, were insane. So I did not go with them. So I found another contractor through Craigslist, which uh, may or may not be a good idea. And, and the numbers were, were a lot less. So I, I ended up giving this guy a shot. This guy didn't pan out, but what I learned uh, by hiring him was a lot of the GCs out there, whether they're big or small, typically have a crew of guys that do all the work. Uh, in the process, they are being the middleman, they're taking a cut, uh, they're upcharging you on their services. A lot of these guys don't do the plumbing, they don't do the electrical, they just hire a plumber, they hire an electrician and they oversee them. And because of that, you pay a premium. So it took me a little while to figure out that this was going on. And I decided I need to kind of go to the horse's mouth in that I need to find the guy on the contractor's crew to work directly for me. So that's the route I took. I, I, I posted ad on Craigslist. I posted ads on Facebook for hiring in, in certain trades. And sometimes you dig through, you know, five, six, seven guys before you find someone that works out. But uh, eventually you do find the people that you need and it's at a fraction of the price. So it does take a little more oversight, a little more management, but if you're going to get into real estate investing in a really big rehabbing fashion, you really can't do it with the big name companies on, on a budget that the single family warrants. So you decided to take the general contractor out of the equation and, and handle that yourself and, and hire subs or well, it sounds like maybe you were hiring guys to work for you maybe on a, a more full-time basis or how did that actually look in terms of you know how much they were working for you so it started on a part-time basis and then uh you know shortly after i started doing the birth strategy I, I went from maybe doing two properties a year to eight to 12. so these guys were employed as long as they wanted to be so they went from part-time guys to full-time guys for the most part but i would try to break the rehabs up quite a bit uh the first gc i hired was you know i guess they would call him a, a one-trick pony but with that uh, the rehab took forever. So now I try to find the specializations. I, I try to find the roofers. I try to find the HVAC guys. Because if I could have you know guys that are proficient in their area doing what they do best, then I can have the GC or the handyman do all the cosmetic makeup and, and put the house together. Because when you rely on one crew to put the entire house together, it could take a long time. And it usually doesn't work out very well, in my experience. Interesting. So I wonder how that turns to you in terms of the actual amount of work in terms of hours that you're taking on for yourself to to manage these things because the the GC okay you're not paying them anymore but they were providing at least some service for for what they were doing so um you mentioned earlier on you had originally gotten into it as a, a passive route uh, into real estate investing for a passive route of of passive income but this is more active how did this you know look for you in terms of logistics and time and all of that so for about two to three years, maybe from 2015 to 2018, I was running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Um, <laughs> you know, we had three or four rehabs going at once. I'd have to drive by the properties several times a week, check the progress. Uh, and it was tough. Uh, things got chaotic. Since then, not only have I slowed down a bit, but I find I have found the right people who have stuck with me for a lot of years. So they come to expect and know what I want from them. So they take way less oversight. So I went from driving out to properties two to three times a week to maybe two to three times a month, uh, which has been great. So really getting systems in place, getting people you can trust is a biggie. And just to circle back on your point about hiring the GC to take some of that off your shoulders. 
At the time, I thought that was the case, but these guys were having a lot of issues with their subcontractors. And those issues became my issues because they, <laughs> the GC wasn't doing his job. So I said, well, if I'm going to deal with these headaches with the GC, I might as well deal with them without a GC. And that's what I did. So they were they were charging, but they weren't really genuinely adding value that compensated for their cost. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. Things would fall apart. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So one of the things that we see when looking at, at uh, renovated properties and especially newer investors don't really know how to best invest their capital in a rehab to get the best bang for their buck. And if you go and, and look at enough renovated properties, you're going to see this firsthand that this guy didn't really know what he was doing or he over-renovated the place or under-renovated the place. And I know you have some ideas around uh, which rehabbing ideas tend to have the best payback for the investor. So let's get into that. And, and what have you what have you found? So what they say is true. Kitchens and bathrooms typically do sell the house. But um, with that, I would say don't go overboard on those. For for quite a few years, I was over-improving. I would take a lot of time to figure out these intricate tile designs or find the, you know, the perfect light fixture, the perfect flooring, something that would stand out from the competition. And back in 2016, 2017, um, you needed to stand out a little bit because houses weren't flying off the shelf like they are now. But what I found out, and, and part of it was through a property that we had flipped in 2016, uh, I had got invited back to the property about a year uh, later because I had made a relationship with the purchaser. And then I found out that they had remodeled 30 to 40% of the stuff that they had that we had just done. So wow. all these intricate tile designs, they didn't even like, they ripped it out, they put their <laughs> own stuff in. So it was kind of a wake up moment for me. I realized, okay, so, you know, rehabbing and doing good work and making it look clean is important. But at the end of the day, try to try to keep it uh, generic uh, to an extent because people do have their own taste. So long as you deliver something that's nice, fresh and clean, uh, it will typically sell the house because the intricate tile design and the nice fancy chandelier doesn't always matter. It's more the intangibles, size of the house, location, number of bedrooms, the neighbors, the things that you really can't change are more important factors than the tile design. Interesting. That that brings to mind my fiance and I are, are looking to buy a new place and, and move. And recently, one of the houses we looked at had new carpet put in it, but they didn't do a good job and nobody wants carpet now anyway. They should have done, you know, LVP or something like that. Mm -hmm. Something that people would be all right with. But uh, yeah, that that uh, brings that to mind. Well, just to add on to that, uh, I rented a house to my sister and I spent, this was back in 2015, I spent all this money refinishing the hardwoods, which I do on every single property. She's obsessed with carpet. So <laughs> she asked me, please, can I, can I put carpet in here on my own dime? I said, Sure. So, you know, she covered up my beautiful brand new hardwood with some cheap carpet. So to each their own, you know, you never know what someone's going to want. <laughs> I guess that, you know, that's fair. I, I like, I, I much prefer hardwood myself, but, uh, uh yeah. me and my wife both like hard, hard surface flooring. And I think generally that's what people want, but you, you do have, you know, your outliers. Yeah. So another one that I see these days is the sliding barn doors, especially like bathrooms. I mean, I just wonder if we could call out a couple, you mentioned intricate tile designs, a couple specific things that are ridiculous and don't really add value. You know, is there anything, anything else that comes to mind that people do a lot? Well, you, you kind of hit it right on the head there with the barn door. So I had a contractor who, who was overly involved in coming up with these great ideas, right? But, you know, he convinced me to do one of the rain shower heads with this really elaborate shower. 
So we did it. But when we sold the house, we found out a lot of people, specifically families, that was not going to work to them. They would much rather have a tub uh, with just a regular shower because they have kids. They don't need this fancy hotel, you know, style shower. So I think a lot of times, like like a barn door, for instance, it doesn't provide any privacy for a bathroom. It looks nice, but I think if you want to appeal to the masses, sometimes practicality overlooks is important. Nice. I I appreciate the way that you you summed it up. So what are the problems now? And and I know you've you've kind of gotten out of this realm and you're going fully commercial um, in the future. But one of the big problems that people are having now in this area that I see is is deal flow, and that's regardless of the. Uh, type of real estate that you're in, but things are hotter now than they were, you know, five years ago. What are your thoughts about sourcing deals right now? Are wholesalers still productive? Is it possible at all to find deals on the MLS? What do you think? So I would say definitely this is market to market, but the entire country is experiencing deal flow issues. Mm -hmm. In the last two years, I've only purchased two single family homes. uh, And part of that is deal flow. Part of it's on transitioning commercial, but Um, Without commercial, if I was forced to stick to the single family side, I'd probably just be adjusting my criteria a bit and my returns would be lower. So I think you could still find deals out there, but I think maybe the slam dunk home run deals uh, are usually off market, if at all. So I know investors who are still in the single family space and they're finding deals, they're they're continuing to go. It just takes a lot more persistence than it did back in, you know, the mid uh, 2015, 2016, where, you know, some of these deals, really great deals would sit on the market for many months. Yeah, it's it's interesting to look back on from today, looking back a few years ago and just thinking there are all these deals that I passed on that didn't look great at the time, but with the benefit of hindsight, they said they definitely look a lot better now, but we only make decisions with the data that we have at any given time. And, you know, that's, that's all we can really do. So transitioning from single families into commercial real estate. I mean, I like commercial real estate, of course, I talk about it all the time, but, you know, for you and and your purposes, what drove that shift and what are the biggest you know differences that you found between what you were doing and what you're doing now? So when I got into residential real estate, I thought I would be buying a hundred, if not hundreds of single family homes throughout my uh, career. I'd hold on to every single one of them and I'd have some monster cash flow at the end with a ton of equity. It wasn't until I got to maybe property 40 or 45 that I decided, you know, I think I want to transition to like some apartment buildings, maybe some mid-size apartment buildings. So I always thought for a while, eventually that's where I would graduate to was apartment buildings. On 2017, uh, I had my first child. I have two girls, a five and a three-year-old. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, prior to that, I was working at home. Uh, the home office thing was perfect. You know, I'd work in the morning, go golf in the afternoon, come back and work <laughs> at night. So things were great. But uh, I had one child and I realized this is not a realistic future for me is to work at home. So I started looking for office space for lease. And in that, I found a building that was for sale in my hometown we have this really trendy downtown area, coffee shops, restaurants, things like that. And it was it was just on the edge of town, perfect location. And the seller had just dropped the price of the building from 350,000 to 275. Long story short, I ended up buying the building. I essentially office hacked it. I'm sitting in this building actually right now. At least I use about 800 square feet for me and I rent out 4,000 square feet to uh, five different tenants. So I never thought I would be getting into office space, but that building worked out so well that I ended up buying a second, third, fourth, and now a fifth. So uh, we do uh, office space, some some strip plazas that have mixed use, uh, things like that. Um, I still haven't done the mid-size apartment building, but I'm, I'm not against uh, residential apartment buildings either. I think those are great spaces. I just haven't found the opportunities that I have uh, in the office commercial world. 
Well, I think one of the benefits that the office investor community has right now is that offices aren't the sexy thing, right? And that is actually a good thing for the people who know what they're doing because there's just less competition, right? When when something's hot, it's you know harder to, harder to find deals, and you know we already kind of covered that with with talking about single families. So in this initial this first purchase. What were the conditions when you bought it? Did you add value? Like, how did it make you know business sense beyond? Hey, I need a a place to have an office. So, I purchased the building for two hundred seventy five thousand. It was uh, owned by an attorney who bought the building in the eighties, and he had uh, ended his uh, practice, or he was in the process of ending it. So, the building hadn't been remodeled much since the eighties. It had a musty smell. Uh, structurally, it was okay, but everything else inside needed taken out and and redone. So, you know, I did run some preliminary numbers based on what I knew at the time, but I actually exceeded my expectations in terms of what I was able to get for rent. So, you know, 275 was the purchase. We put about 50,000 into it. So all in, we were about 325,000. After I had it appraised roughly 18 months later, it appraised at 450,000. So I was able to pay the seller note, seller finance 50,000 of it. I financed the rest through my private lending network. So it took about 18 months to pay everyone back, which was partly due to COVID. Right when I filled my building up, COVID had set in and banks weren't touching anything on the office space side, uh, unless you were willing to do you know, 50% LTV or something ridiculous. So I, I sat on it a little bit longer, but eventually things you know moved along and, and we were able to get the deal done. Nice, nice. So how about the occupancy when you originally bought it? As you said, the attorney owned it. Were there other tenants in there or, or how did you... You know, go about that and, and especially you know fixing that musty smell and everything and making it like an appealing place for uh for a tenant to rent so yeah it was after he was moving out it was going to be 100 percent vacant he had a couple tenants over the years himself but it wasn't going to qualify for any kind of bank financing because of the vacancy so that's why i did purchase it through a seller note and the private money um so we rehab this building i would say nicer than i rehab commercial buildings now but uh, part of that was because i was occupying the space the other part of that was uh it was in a prime location right outside downtown so i thought you know the rents could warrant uh we did you know it's an 1850 historic building so wow. back to back to civil war days it used to be a doctor's office in 1857 and they would operate on civil war beds so <laughs> It's a heritage home, has a ton of history behind it. So we kind of uh, took a look, we went the extra mile in, in restoring it. And all of our tenants are females. When the only thing I can gather from that is they really appreciated not only the historic nature of it, but the character that we had put into it as well. So uh, I, I wouldn't say that that was uh, the right or wrong move, but in, in this particular area, uh, it was okay to spend a little extra money on the rehab. Nice. So especially you're talking about you were refinancing during COVID where you, it sounds like you were finding tenants, office tenants during COVID too, which I can imagine, you know, was probably not very easy. How did that go? Had it not been in this location, I'm not sure that I would have filled it so quickly, but I think it was less than 90 days. We had wow. uh, four, four units uh, filled, but what we did with most of them is in our contract, we had some kind of COVID clause where we would extend payment due dates and things like that to help out with closures and things of that sort. So we try to make it really easy for our tenants to feel safe moving in. And that that is actually something that we actually try to still do today. We don't have anything like a COVID clause anymore, but we, we still try to make it really easy for our tenants to get started. We'll offer two or three months free. We will offer to do build outs and amortize the cost of the build out into the lease. 
And that has helped us fill our units a lot quicker than if you see a lot of these places that are vacant for years, but it's just a shell space and the, the tenant has to bring everything to the table. Mm, interesting. So, okay, going on to do more office deals as you have, how are you finding these deals? Are you working with brokers or doing it yourself or you know, LoopNet or, or whatever? And you know, how are you adding value? Tell us all about it. So we just closed our fifth deal I guess it was October of this past year. Every deal, including that one, had been found on LoopNet or wow. through through the MLS. Uh, during COVID, these office deals were everywhere because anything with vacancy or partial vacancy was not going to be bankable. Um, so that really opened things up for guys with private money that they can, you know. So we were able to find some smoking deals in terms of list price compared to accepted offer price. You know, sometimes fifty percent of ask price would, would get us the would get us the building. Um, but in in Three out of six of these deals were inheritance properties where the kids inherited them and they didn't really have much uh, invested into it in terms of uh, emotion. So they just wanted to get rid of it. And a guy with cash that came to the table got it. So interesting. Okay. Well, you have to, you know, you have to know your market. And I know other people personally who have, who had, you know, private money, access to private money, who did some really awesome office deals throughout COVID. And it kind of sounds like, are you implying that that's kind of gone away or that's changed as we hopefully get closer to the, the end of COVID and, and things change or how has that evolved? I think it depends on the type of commercial building you're looking at. We specialize in, I would say, uh, the office I'm sitting at is probably like an A area, but the other purchases that I made after that were in C plus B minus areas. So similar to the route I took in single family, uh, we wouldn't invest in the A cities because typically uh, those are the lowest returns, maybe the lowest risk, but you pay a premium for the property, uh, even though you can expect more in rent, uh, the numbers aren't, don't always jive. So we're buying either vacant or mostly vacant buildings in C plus B minus neighborhoods at pennies on the dollar, I would say. And then after we fill them with tenants, the building value typically is three or four times what we paid for it. Wow. That's awesome. That's great. So if we, you know, maybe not rewind the clock, but we we're, pretend we're we're talking to Adam of almost 10 years ago out there right now, trying to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to go burr properties? Is he going to dive straight into offices or, or what is he going to do? If we're going to sum up, you know, your experience and, and talking to the newbies out there, what are your thoughts? Should, should people still be working to get into burrs or, or offices or looking to become lenders or what do you think, you know, if we're going to kind of sum it all up talking to the people who are just getting started? Well, again, this, this would depend on the person mostly because of, you know, when I got into this, I was all about passive income. Mm -hmm. The more I got into it, the more I enjoyed uh, being hands-on, not only because I actually liked the work itself, but of course the returns, I, I saw the potential out there for, for some of these deals. And I said, my time is worth uh, being hands-on essentially. So I kind of shifted gears. I still do my internet business, but I would say it used to be 70% of my time on the internet business. Now it's 70% of my time on the real estate business. And I much prefer it that way. So um, an investor who wants to be more passive, I would say the A areas with the lower returns are, are good. Some investors might be okay with an 8% return, getting the mortgage paid off on a single family home and then owning it outright in 20 or 30 years. Maybe someone who's more aggressive does want to implement the burst strategy. And, and there's no doubt that the burst strategy is going to create wealth a lot faster than the passive side, but it depends on how, how much you want to get your hands dirty. So it really depends on the person itself. But my suggestion would be uh, go the burr route. Uh, I think it's worth the investment. And maybe you don't have to take on the massive 
complete down to the studs rehab, but don't buy something that is moving ready unless you really want a passive investment. And, and for that, I might say, put your money into the S&P 500 or do some kind of other investment because if you run the numbers on, on buying a property at market value, they're not always that great. Yeah, and especially now, market values being so crazy and, and how are you gonna get anything even at at the original list price, I mean, depending on on where you are, but uh, great. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, summing that all up for us and, you know, giving us uh, some advice about what folks should be doing out there. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own and the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called Ground Floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Adam, I've got three questions I asked every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So uh, this would be a non-monetary investment, but I would say the investment in my time in terms of giving it to other people. Uh, I, I'd like to say that's like, you know, volunteering at a hospital, but really that's meeting with investors, either new or experienced, grabbing a cup of coffee, getting lunch, grabbing a beer. I pretty much don't ever turn anyone down. And that has paid back tenfold for me because uh, the building that we recently did uh, this past summer all started from a cup of coffee five years ago where I met a complete newbie investor. He wanted to pick my brain on the single family side. In that five years, he bought some duplexes and fourplexes, but you know he was a really smart guy. So uh, once he caught on to the real estate thing, he went all in and I would consider myself smart in real estate, but I wouldn't say I'm, I'm smart. I'm more of an entrepreneur. I'm not the brainiac analytical guy. We're not all, you know, chemical engineers from Delaware or anything like that. <laughs> so when, when you can get the combination of an entrepreneur and a really smart guy, you learn a lot of things from them. So this guy initially was learning things from me. Uh, and now I would say I'm learning things from him. And part of that is the things that he has learned. Also, a lot of that is the, the shoulders that he rubs with are guys who are doing this type of thing in a bigger fashion. So you learn things along the way you never thought you would have learned. And a lot of that came from networking. Wow, that's awesome. And and it's only that those types of lessons have only been reinforced for me more over the years, how much in real estate, especially your network is your net worth and, and, you know, getting to know people, building relationships in the long run is just, is just fantastic. And it, it helps you get things done. So I appreciate that. 
We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Well, I could go into a, a flip we did, but that's that's kind of boring. It was a one flip that went south. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of spin it and say the worst investment I have made was I joined social media about two years ago, again, to network and, and show my experience to investors. What I didn't know at the time was the amount of salesmen who are on social media targeting someone like me or like anyone trying to sell just about everything. So I was approached by a company and their whole thing was getting coaching platforms off the ground. And I, I had lightly contemplated you know, selling coaching services and things like that, but I was thinking years and years down the road. They do their sales thing. They talk about how great this can be. They said, we're going to help set it up. Long story short, I gave them a large sum of money to get going on this project. And halfway through me creating these courses and researching it, I decided that this is not what I want to do. I just thought it had a real snake oil salesman thing to it. And I said, I'm going to do just fine in real estate investing. I don't necessarily need the income from coaching. And I'd rather be known as a real estate investor, not a guy that's trying to send, sell you $5,000 course. So I pretty much nixed that project right in the middle of it and flushed uh, just shy of 10 grand down the toilet. Wow. I can understand that. I've been asked by people recently about, you know, selling coaching and everything. And I don't, I don't have any interest in that personally, not that there's anything wrong with it. And there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. And just the the thought of being associated with them, uh, doesn't, doesn't feel good. So, uh, um, I appreciate that you backed out of it and, and took the hit. I can't say that, you know, 15 years from now or 20 years from now, I, I may not revisit something like that, but right now it's, it's not anywhere I want to go. Nice. Nice. Integrity is important. So it's good you, good you chose that route. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Well, this will go back to maybe two questions ago, but again, it's, it's networking. You know, early on, you hear about networking and you kind of, you know, brush it off and you say, what, what can I gain from that? But then you start doing it and you realize you can gain everything. If you don't network, you're going to be pretty stagnant in your business. Uh, so uh, again, it's relationships and networking is huge in business, no matter what business you're in. So I would push that full blow, go to meetings, go to meetups, get on Instagram, get on social media. I didn't think I'd ever be uh, advertising that I'm a real estate investor on Instagram, but from my Instagram page, I've made so many connections. It, it's been great. So tell everyone what you do, try to network with everyone in your space. Good things will come. Awesome. Well, we'll have to make sure uh, we tag you on Instagram on this uh episode when we send it out. And Adam, it's been a, a great conversation with you today. Very impressive experience. And I appreciate all the lessons that you brought to us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to, you know, whatever, if they're in your area, grab a beer or coffee, or maybe go golfing one afternoon, where can they track you down? Sure thing. So uh, Instagram, it's Adam, the investor. Uh, you can visit my website, which is cleinvest.com. Uh, all my contact information is on there. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. That helps other people see that they can learn from th something from this show as well. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. 
No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you want to learn more, go to investwithtaylor.com, take the steps there, and we will connect. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.